please continue standing in honor of reading the God's Word. Chapter Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you have your Bible this morning, let me invite you to open to Acts chapter 2, the passage our friend Stephanie just read. Thank you, Stephanie. We're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We're looking at a summary of the kind of activities that the early church was devoted to, was committed to, was involved in. And this passage is what inspired me. This is one of the passages that inspired me and my wife Stephanie to help start a church. We thought, what, wouldn't it be awesome to be a part of a church like this? Does it sound great? People are devoted to the gospel, the, the teaching of the apostles. They're devoted to the scriptures. The, the people are devoted to each other. They're committed to one another. They're breaking bread and praying together. They're receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Amen. This is what we want to do, right? I love to do this receiving food with glad and generous hearts. <laughs> Praising God, having favor with all the people, and they're growing. Right? If, if you're a Christian, this sounds like a great kind of church to be a part of, right? And who doesn't want to be a part of a church like this? Luke describes the early church in a way that was similar to how Greek philosophers described the utopian community, the, the ideal society, the, the word that Luke uses in Acts 2.42 translated in our English Bibles as fellowship. In the Greek, it's the word koinonia. It's the same word that the Greek philosophers use to describe what does the perfect community look like? What's the ideal society? Plato, Aristotle, Philo, they all described this kind of community, this proverbial Hellenistic commonplace where friends are sharing their things together. No one is having selfish claim on their stuff. They're unified. They have all things in common. One commentator wrote about this. If he's Luke is writing to Theophilus. If he was literate, he likely would have known the Greco-Roman thoughts about such ideal communities. And this feature of the early Christianity he may have found attractive, especially if it meant that he might be a benefactor to this kind of community. Like, this isn't just the kind of community that Greek philosophers need to dream about. Like, wouldn't it be cool if this was the perfect society? This is something that's, that's actually happening as it's birthed out of the Spirit and as the church has responded to the gospel. It's really happening. It's taking root. Many are still looking for this kind of ideal community, aren't they? Community of unity and people having all things in common, a people of peace and people sharing with one another. Some argue the way to do this is a political system. It's been tried. Socialism or communism, we need to a structure rules, strict rules to help people comply to this kind of society. There was, in fact, a Jewish community called the Qumran community that tried to establish this kind of community through harsh rules and strict regulations. 
No one could have any stuff. They had to sign away. Uh, these, these were very zealous, zealous people. And, it, and Luke is writing, this isn't just a kind of community that's coming about from browbeating, from appealing to human effort, from strict demand. It's not a society that's full of rules. It wasn't obligated or forced. This was a church that was glad and generous. This was a church that was living in response to the gospel that had just been proclaimed and had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Something different. It has a different source. It was an eternal pressure. It was new birth from the Holy Spirit. Earlier in chapter 2, we, we saw there was a sermon from the Apostle Peter. It's recorded, and Peter says, Repent and be baptized. Turn and come to Jesus and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're told that that day, 3,000 souls are added. And then we're told in this summary passage, what, what are these 3,000 souls, what do they commit themselves to? And John Stott summarizes, we have evidence of the Holy Spirit as listed in kind of four ways, four categories that you could think about. What was this early church about? They were, he says, a learning church. They were a loving church. He says they were a worshiping church and they were an evangelistic church. They were a learning church. They, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Spirit of God encourages people to submit to the Word of God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And one of the ways that we're going to seek to grow as a learning church is introducing a, a kind of online training, if you will, a, a disciple-forming curriculum, helping disciples grow in stuff like spiritual formation and Bible fluency and spiritual design and evangelism and relationships and understanding the church and leadership. If you're interested in, in joining this, we're just going to be rolling out a pilot cohort, if you will, in February. And the hope, I would love to see everyone in our church grow through this at some point. It's kind of a work-at-your-own-pace kind of curriculum. Uh, but we're going to start a pilot cohort to kind of get a handful of people that have gone through it so then we can have other people that could serve as kind of facilitators and coaches going forward with someone else. So if you're interested in that, I'm excited about it. We've got five or six people that have signed up already uh, to be a part of it. Send me an email, Daniel at the Mountain Church. We're going to meet once a month on Zoom, the first Tuesday of the month, and we're going to meet once a month on a Sunday afternoon right after church. Uh, and it'll be about seven months committed together to go through this content. So they were a learning church, and we want to grow as a learning church. They were a loving church. You see there how, how Luke described they were giving their possessions for one another. They were generous giving, and there was healthy receiving. They were a worshiping church. They were going to the temple and praising together. They were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, and it was an evangelistic church. The Lord was adding to their number daily. That's, you think about that as four different categories of what was this church about? Learning, loving, worshiping, evangelizing. So let's walk through the text together. Acts chapter 2, looking at verse 42. Luke's going to record they devote themselves to four things in this verse. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Right, so this is, these are the four things, these new converts, but the Spirit has filled, has filled them, the Spirit's at work in their life, and they're devoting themselves to these four things, the teaching of the apostles. Is most likely referring to the Old Testament scriptures that, are, that the apostles are preaching in fulfillment of Jesus, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of these scriptures, showing what does it mean to follow Jesus. This would have been the apostles' kind of recollection of Jesus' teaching as he was with them for three years. We could think about this now as our Bible, the New Testament. This is the apostles' teaching. This probably also included what Jesus had taught his disciples those 40 days after he had been with them, after he rose from the dead, before he ascended. From the sermons we see in Acts, we most likely see, or we usually see, that the apostles were, would preach an Old Testament passage and then interpret it in light of Jesus. And that's something that we want to do as a church. Amen? We want to look at the Bible not as rules or obligations to follow, but as a story that points us to Christ 
and how we can follow him and know him and, and love him. Secondly, they devote themselves to fellowship. Thirdly, they devote themselves to the breaking of bread, which, which might have been a reference to the Lord's Supper or kind of a, a communal meal they might have had at, at worship. And lastly, prayer. Now, I, I don't do this very often, but I know some of you really like it. Some, some of you who are more uh, like the kind of behind the text in the Greek. I think I've only done this once in life. I'm thinking of you, Stephanie Jester. You love looking at the Greek. So I put up the Greek, what it shows here, in, in Acts 2, 42. And uh, anyone want to read that for me? Greg, you can want to take a shot at that? <laughs> I'm going to give it a shot. I've taken elementary Greek. I have not taken advanced Greek. So I know how to pronounce things, and I know what some words mean. But I, I like looking at the Greek from time to time as it shows what, what do certain words mean. Like fellowship, to me, it's kind of a churchy word, right? It's a word that we primarily see in the church. So what does that, what does that mean? Where does it come from? Luke writes, it says there, proskar ter untes te didache, which is the teaching. They devoted themselves to the teaching. Ton apostolone of the apostles. Kai te koinonia, and the fellowship, which is translated in your English Bible. And classe tu arto, which would be breaking of bread. Kai tes prosukes, and the prayers. And that word koinonia is where we translated the word fellowship. And, um, and in my study of this week, some argued that, that actually the breaking of bread and the prayers could be categorically thought of as under koinonia. So there's almost like two things that are being presented here, teaching, didache, and koinonia. And uh, expressing, you know, kind of sharing your meals and praying together is a way of expressing fellowship. And this word koinonia, it means fellowship or communion or sharing or participation. It's a term that conveys a sense of community, solidarity, and shared responsibility among households or individuals. It's close association. It's shared life, participation. And Philippians 2, 1 through 2, Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and full mind. So, and, and the word that Paul uses there in participation in the Spirit, it's koinonia de pneumatos, koinonia of the, of the Spirit. And, and fellowship is where I think, you know, if, if we grew up in the church, we might think of fellowship as like the, the kind of a good feeling of being together, right? We might think of fellowships, Christians might use the word fellowship as they say, yeah, we had a good time of fellowship. They can mean we had a good discussion about sports, or we had a good discussion about politics or current events. We connected over a similar interest. The, the meeting went well. We had good fellowship, as we kind of describe it like that. And, and this has led some to say that the word fellowship is actually maybe not the most helpful translation because fellowship is the result of koinonia, but it's not the koinonia itself. It's the result of sharing in common, but it's not the feeling. It's talking about the, the sharing, the participation. The early church was devoted to the shared life sharing life together, praying together, eating food together, sharing their, their things together. And that can result in a feeling of companionship. Right? But they were, what they were committed to was the participation, the, the sharing. Does that make sense? Am I making that clear? It's not as though you find fellowship, right? It's you commit yourself to the shared life, to participation. It's something you commit to. The early church was devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the koinonia, the participation in the shared life, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And the summary continues in verse 43. 
It says, an awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We're going to see in the coming chapters this reality. The, the apostles do awesome works. Great signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. There's this one time where the apostle Peter is walking by someone, and just his shadow touching them heals them. Wow, that's awesome. That's amazing work. Many signs and wonders are being done through the apostles. And verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This doesn't mean they rejected private property necessarily. That means they, they didn't have a selfishness about their stuff. We, we tried to cultivate this in our church. Like I, I bought a pole saw. You need to use a pole saw? Just borrow my pole saw. Don't buy a pole saw. Just use mine. It's yours. Right? Many of us have this, this kind of attitude in our church of, hey, this is, my, this is my stuff, but use it. It's yours. If I'm not using it, use it. You don't need to buy something else. Uh, an early church father named John Christendom, he, he was a writer around 8375. This is how he described the fellowship, the Koinonia. He says there was an angelic commonwealth, not to call anything of theirs their own. The root of evils were cut out. None reproached, none envied, none grudged, no pride, no contempt was there. The poor man knew no shame, the rich man knew no haughtiness. An angelic commonwealth, he called it. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These early Christians were primarily Jewish at this point as Peter had given up and given a sermon on Pentecost, and the temple was the center of the community life. It was the center of, of worship life. And it might have been that they were going to the temple day by day because they were announcing the good news that Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of what they've been looking for, and they were calling for the Jews to, to believe in this Jesus. It says all the, and the people had, they had favor with all the people. This, this is a last forever because persecution starts as, as, as you start to realize, oh, this is, this is not going, we need to stop this. We need, people, we need to tell them, hey, stop talking about Jesus. Stop it with this guy, Jesus. And they said, no, we're not going to stop with this Jesus. And, and the church continues to grow and expand. But they have favor with all people at this time. And it says 3,000 souls were added in one day. This probably means if they were going from house to house. And I don't, I don't know of a house for, with one person that, that has enough living room space to house 3,000 people for a fellowship meal. So probably most likely they had like a network of going from house to house in smaller groups in, in Jerusalem. Uh, there wouldn't have been a home large enough to accommodate all these people, but maybe they had a network of home groups or meals in their homes. As, as Luke records, it's the Lord that added to their number day by day. It wasn't so much as though the early church was like, we really need to grow. What are the strategies that we need to implement to have the most growth? They were committing themselves to the word of God, to sharing life together, the fellowship, to prayer and to the breaking of bread. And it says, God added to their number those who are being saved. So what do we do with the summary from Acts 2 this morning? Do we say, well, Luke is simply just describing what the early church did. It's descriptive. There's no commands there. You notice that. There's no commands there. So that was, that was cool for back then, but that's not really applicable for us today. It's kind of meaningless. There's no commands we need to do. At the same time, I, I don't think it's wise to say, okay, it's just descriptive, so we have nothing to learn from it, to say, no, that's, I don't think that's necessarily true. This is, there's an example set before us of a model. There's not, a, I don't think, a command to be prescriptive, as this is how you have to do church. But it does give us an example, a model, a picture of 
what did the early church commit themselves to as they responded to the gospel being proclaimed and as they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Jim Hamilton says it like this in his commentary. The last two verses of chapter two reveal a community filled with the Spirit, growing in numbers, overflowing with gratitude and charity, a beautiful picture of the transforming power of the Spirit through gospel ministry. This is also a picture foreshadowing of the life to come. In the community empowered by the Spirit, the eschatological kingdom breaks into the present. Much in the same way that heaven and earth met in the risen Christ, a believing community focused on the gospel, praising God, praying, and gladly putting the needs of others first, and their experiences shows to the world the reality of heaven here and now. Luke leaves for us a model, not how to do church, but for what the people of God should look like in terms of priorities actions, service, and practice. Right? Yes, this is a description. It's not a command, but it does give us a helpful example, I think, a model of what, what the early church committed themselves to and what we can be committing ourselves to as a church. I, I also don't think it's wise on the one hand to say, okay, it's descriptive, it's meaningless, it doesn't apply to us. On the other hand to say, well, this is what we need to be. This is, we idealize the church and it creates a kind of unhealthy standard in our mind in which we judge everything by this. Does that make sense? We have this belief of, oh, the church in America is just watered down. We just need to get back to what it was like in Acts. Anyone hear anyone talk like this? We just need to get back to what the church used to be. And we know, if we've been in churches, every church has problems <laughs> because every church has people. Yes. Every church has people. Every church is full of problems. Churches can be healthier or unhealthier. They can be more doctrinally sound or not as doctrinally sound, but there is no perfect church. The church in Acts chapter 2 was not perfect. The New Testament church that the Apostle Paul started, those were not perfect churches. They had problems. You read about the New Testament letters, they have many problems. In this way, I think we need to be careful of loving an idealized version of church more than the actual church itself. One of the ways that, one of the writers that put this better than anyone I've, I've heard or better that I could say it is a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a Lutheran pastor. He was German. He was very theological and a writer in the 1900s. He was anti-Nazi. He, he plotted to overthrow Hitler, which eventually led to his imprisonment and his execution in 1945. But he wrote a couple books that you could call kind of Christian modern classics. One of them is a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and one of them is called Life Together, where he describes Christian community. And this is what he says. He wrote about the danger of having an idealized version of church, having a dream of community, and, and how that actually damages the actual community itself. Listen, listen to what he writes. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian, Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may ever be honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it to be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges all brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, and it's his dream that binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally an accuser of himself. 
because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered our common life with them, we enter into that common life, not as demanders, he says, but as thankful participants, recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call for his forgiveness and his promise. We do not complain about what God does not give. We rather thank God for what he gives to us daily. You guys ever seen someone like this destroy a church or a community? I have. They have a vision of what they think it should look like, and they're calling someone to a standard that actually creates new laws for people and destroys them under heaping guilt and shame. Do you see what Bonhoeffer is saying? If you love your dream of church more than the church itself, you actually destroy the thing that you're seeking. If you read Acts 2 and you're continually judging and critiquing other churches based on this criteria, you don't actually love the church. You might love your dream of the church that's rooted in yourself. We find in Acts 2 is a helpful example of what life looked like for the early church, but it's not a new kind of law. We must keep in mind that the church in Acts 2.42 was not established before the sermon in Acts 2.1-41. I think what we see described in Acts 2.42 is a community of people that have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. These weren't external laws that were put upon them to act a certain way. This is what they did. They lived out what you could call a response to the gospel. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture, they centered themselves on the gospel. What does it look like to live by the Spirit as it's seen through this gospel ministry? They're studying the gospel. They're studying the apostles' teaching. They're committing themselves to one another. They're praising God. They're giving themselves up for one another like Jesus did for his church. I think simply here, they are responding to the gospel. That's what the church is. This is what, the church, this is what church looks like when, when the gospel is at the center of the church. Acts 2 is not meaningless for us today, 2,000 years later. It's not a manual for how to do church. It's a model showing us how believers in the first century were changed and what they devoted themselves to. The word devoted there is, is a, it's a word that connotates steadfast, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. Devoted means to persevere, to remain with, to continue steadfastly, to continually give yourself to. It's, devoted means to give yourself in time and effort in money to a cause, to an enterprise, or to an activity. And I was curious as I was studying this passage, okay, so what the early church devoted themselves to? What, what do Americans devote themselves to? Like if someone was to write a, a summary of Americans and four things, what would someone write Americans are devoted to? You don't have any guess? I started to Google and look up studies. Food, Food. freedom, money, freedom, pleasure. pleasure. This is, this is what I found in some of the studies I looked at. I found that the number one activity outside of sleeping and work, and I put school and work because those were kind of the, together. What is our culture devoted to? The first thing after that is entertainment. TV, screens, comfort. The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that watching TV was the leisure and sports activity that occupied most of the time and accounted for over half of all leisure time on average. I googled, what do Americans, what are they devoted to? Second thing that popped up was a CNN article that said, uh, Americans devote more than 10 hours a day to screen time. <laughs> Is that true? Looked up other studies, I, I found a, a, how do Americans spend their time? A Chicago, Chicago Tribune article that listed 22 different categories, kind of lumping out of activities that we might do. Right, third on the list, TV, it's crazy. What was at the bottom of the list? Volunteering, right? <laughs> Giving back. 
And religious and spiritual activities were also pretty low. A new Nielsen Company audience reports that adults in the United States devote more than 10 hours and 49 minutes each day to consuming media during the year. We're devoted to personal comfort, to entertainment, and to consuming. And this just reveals, I think, not just the, the heart of Americans, but kind of the default mode of the human heart. How can I get the most out of and put the least in? Human heart is devoted on itself. I, we sing this song. I, I try to teach my girls, what is the heart of sin? And I, I sing them this song. I want what I want when I want it. And when I want it, I better get it now. Do you want to talk about what is sin? What's the heart of sin? It's that. I want what I want when I want it. And when I want it, I better get it now. If I don't get what I want, I'm going to get angry. Many opportunities in our household to sing this song, to remind them of this song, to ask God for help. This is, our society feeds into this mentality, right? Think about all the things that have Insta in the front. We have Instagram, Instacart, Instapot, Instahot. Right? It's like a Dr. Seuss kind of a... <laughs> you want quick personal satisfaction. We want options that... Right? You want to feel good about yourself. You want to seek pleasure. There's like limitless options online in the click of a button. We live in a consumeristic society. When you devote yourself to something, you give yourself to that. You're devoted to the Seahawks. You give yourself to watching them, to giving your money to the organization to wear their gear. You buy their tickets. You give your energy and your focus to the Seahawks if you're devoted to the Seahawks. The, the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the prayer, and to the participation in the shared life. Uh, ultimately, they, they gave themselves to these things, I think, because they were giving themselves ultimately to Jesus and responding to the call of the gospel. This kind of utopian community for the Greeks, it's, it's a kind of community that was compelling. And I believe that many in our society are looking for this kind of community. It's so unusual to see this. I think we see this in our church, this kind of community. There's unselfishness. There's a demonstration of radical heart change. There's a lives that were changed by the presence and the power of the, the Holy Spirit. And the description of the community in Acts 2 comes as a response to the proclamation of the gospel and the filling of the, the Holy Spirit. So if we want to learn from the early example of the church, I don't think it's wise for us to say, we need to grow in being devoted to these things, as if we focus on the activities and not focus on the Savior that they were responding to. Does that make sense? If we want to learn from the example of the church, their example can teach us what the people should be devoted to in service and practice, but we don't grow in these activities simply by appealing to human effort to try to create these things on our own. In other words, I don't think people grow in devoting themselves to the gospel and the study of God's word and the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers simply by being told to be more devoted. I don't want us to study Acts and say, we need to be more like that. Let's try harder. Let's be as committed as the early church was. Come on, guys, what are you doing? You're missing a Sunday? Wow, the early church didn't do that. They were meeting together every day. Wow, and look at us. We, we think it's committed to show up to church once a month. Man, we really need a change. Just me? Don't want us to study the Acts and say, we need to be more like that. Let's try harder. I want us to say, look 
wow, look how the church responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look how the church was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray that God would help us to understand the gospel, that we would respond accordingly, that the Spirit would be at work in our life. The same Spirit who is at work in Acts 2 would be at work in our church. And let's leave the results up to God. Amen? Let's pray that the Father would help us to be gripped by the glorious gospel of grace of Jesus Christ, that our devotion and our activity, our practices would flow from this encounter with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? If what resulted in Acts was the result of the preaching of the gospel, if what Luke is describing is the fruit of the gospel, it's good for us to consider what the root of the fruit is, right? Instead of saying, well, it's not really that relevant or meaningful in Acts 2, or instead of becoming overly critical as this is a manual to follow and we're going to judge everyone based on this and we're going to become prideful if we think our church is a better example of Acts 2 than that church over there, so we're far superior, We don't move on from the gospel. We say, this is what happened as a result of the gospel. Father, help us to understand the gospel like that, that we would be devoted to each other and devoted to your word in response to what you have been for us. Amen? We grow in devotion for Jesus, for his word, for his people, as we're captured in how devoted Jesus was to us in the gospel. John Stott describes Christian fellowship like this. Christian fellowship is Christian caring, and Christian caring is Christian sharing. I think Christian sharing comes in response to Christ caring and sharing. When Jesus came into the world, he he came into earth. He left his glory, his power, his status behind. On the cross, he gave himself away. He entrusted himself to God the Father. He forsake glory and honor and, and was willingly treated as a criminal and a murderer and he was despised and humiliated. On the cross, Jesus, the scriptures say, was, became sin He became, the, and and on his death on the cross, he took the consequence of our self-centeredness and our selfishness and our sinfulness, all the ways in which convolute and destroy relationships with God and with others. He took that upon himself. He was rejected and forsaken so that we could be accepted and loved and forgiven. And no religion before our sense, no other philosophy has ever said that God gave himself away like this. The heart of ultimate reality is not holding on to your power, not holding on to your wealth, not holding on to your glory, but giving it away, giving yourself to other people, giving yourself away for others. This is what Jesus did. And as we think about this and as we're gripped by this and we respond to this, I have seen it and I know what happens. We give ourselves to other in response. This happens. If you're gripped by this reality, you realize that God gave his son Jesus away from, for you Jesus gave his life for you. It melts the heart of stone and the heart of self-centeredness that can so often be present in our life. The more you grow in an awareness and understanding of your own self-centeredness and all that Jesus did and accomplished for you, you grow in love. You grow in the impulse to be self-giving, not self-centered. Jesus says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. We don't want to think about, yeah, the gospel, that's just for those People that don't know Jesus, I know Jesus died for my sins. I'm, I want to move on to something else. We don't do that in the church. If you see Jesus' great love towards you, you see his self-giving love, his lack of self-centeredness, and, and he did that for you, the more that you'll grow less self-centered, the more that you'll grow loving. I've, I've heard it said, we're most like God when we're giving. Maybe you're thinking, you know, Daniel, that sounds great. I, I want to have this heart. I, 
I want to be more marked by self-giving love and more than self-preservation or self-centeredness. I want to grow in being devoted to my church, my fellow brothers and sisters. I want to grow in being more devoted to the apostles' teaching. How do, how do I do that? How do I take steps forwards to that? And I would, I would say one, one practical thing would be to take steps towards it. Does that make sense? I, I would not have, I don't think I would have the same heart that I have for the church if I wasn't in the position that I was in and kind of being forced in many ways to be in relationship with people that I might not naturally be in relationship with. Make sense? Like the more that I've spent time with you, the more that I've grown to love you. Does that make sense? Say, so I, I wish I had that kind of heart for Jesus and the church. Oh, I guess I'll just wait for God to give it to me. We could take the initiative. We can, the scriptures say we can walk by faith, asking God, would you, would you help me to feel these kind of warm feelings towards my church? But as I, as I pray this, I'm going to be walking towards other people. I'm going to be saying, hey, Aaron and Pam, do you guys want to come for dinner? I'd love to hear how God is at work in your life and, and try to encourage you. Sounds great. <laughs> we seek to take ownership. We, we respond to God's initiative in being initiatory. Is that a word? Initiatory? You guys know what I'm saying, right? We take the initiative. Instead of saying, okay, I, I really want to, like, it'd be really cool to be a part of a church like this. Instead of saying, well, I'll have someone over to my house after someone invites me to their house. We flip that. I want to be a part of a church like this, and I want to take ownership into helping establish this kind of culture. So what am I going to do? Instead of waiting to be pursued by others, I'm going to pursue others. Does that make sense? Everyone's at different places in their own spiritual maturity. Everyone is growing out of self-centeredness into love at God's pace. Amen? Not ours. But I think about maturity as, as those who take the initiative. You think about a baby and an adult. And I, I don't think I really understood how much my parents did for me until I had kids. Like, my kids are, they're not malicious, but they're some of the most self-centered people I, I know. And it's not because they're trying to be, they're just, Im, they're immature, right? It's, it's, their, it's, it's their, their mental development. You know, Addison, I don't think, or especially Anna, is not thinking, wow, my mom must be really hungry right now. I'm not going to cry and throw a fit. I'm going to give my food to my mom. I can be hungry. That's unheard of. Babies don't do that. Right? When Anna is hungry, when she wants something, she screams. I'm focused on my needs. You know, Addison and Avery and Anna, they have no idea all that goes into loving and caring for them. I had no idea all my parents did for me. Like, they go to bed at 7 o'clock, 7.30. What are we doing? Preparing meals, cleaning up the kitchen, getting the day ready for the you know, getting the house ready for the next day. Stephanie's planning about, you know, what can we get for the kids and feed them and what kind of activities can we plan for them? They, they have no idea all that's going on. They're just, what can I, you know, I'm hungry. Mom, 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 can I eat? I'm hungry, right? I think about maturity like that. Immature people, are, are, they're always thinking about themselves. Saying, well, no one's pursuing me. Right? No, no, one, no one is reaching out to me. What's in it for me? But the more you grow into maturity, the less you think about yourself and you're thinking about others. How have I been pursuing others lately? How have I been taking the initiative? 
I'm less concerned with who's trying to reach out to me and encourage me, and I'm more concerned with who I'm reaching out to. How can I pursue and encourage others? We don't say, well, I'll be devoted to others when they're more devoted to me. That's not, that's not a proper response to the gospel. It's Christ has been so devoted to me. He's loved me so much. I have so much I can share and encourage others with. God, give me grace to do that. Jesus was devoted to me when I was self-centered and rebellious and sinning. Certainly, I can be loving to other self-centered people that are out there, like me. I want to learn more from the heart of Jesus by devoting myself to being other-focused, not self-centered, other-centered, and reflect the heart of Christ. Amen? It's one way, church, and I'm so encouraged by what I see God doing in this church, and it's in many ways... I haven't been a part of a church like the Mountain Church that it just seems like we do really love each other. It seems like we do really want to hear from God's word. We really do want to be, have our lives kind of shaped and molded by what God's word says. We, we do pray for each other. We reach out to each other for prayer. We do. We love eating together. That's like one of our strengths, man. Because potlucks are awesome. Probably has nothing to do with my love of food, but... I love to eat and break bread with you. If you want to grow in breaking bread with me, I'm open any time to do that with you. And I want to encourage us, church, God has been so gracious and good to us. So we respond out of his devotion. And we give ourselves in love to others the more we grow in love for him. Amen? Let's pray. God, would you give us grace now as we respond to Jesus as we're led by the Spirit? We submit ourselves and depend upon God the Father that we would grow as the kind of church God has called us to be. We we see that there's not a command in Acts 2, but we we see that it also, it's not just something that we could throw out as if it doesn't have any relevance to our our life. And Father, I pray that that we wouldn't simply focus so much on the activities that we miss what what they were responding to, ultimately who they were devoting themselves to. Father, I pray that, that Jesus, you would be honored as, as we gather and that you'd be made much of in our gatherings together. I, I pray that you would be glorified as we break bread in our homes together. I, I pray that you'd be glorified as we study the Bible and in small groups. I pray that you would be glorified as we meet together individually. Lord, we do want to be a church that encourages one another. Encourage one another in, in growth and maturity in Christ. This is what Apostle Paul said, I'm giving myself, I toil and strive that I might present everyone mature in Christ. Father, help us to grow in maturity in Christ-likeness. Or to help us to bear with those who are maybe not as far into the maturity path as, as others. As some that are hard for us to love. We see their self-centeredness, and so often, Father, I see other people's self-centeredness so more clearly than I see my own. I need help. Pray that you'd help us to grow more into the heart of Jesus, that those in our community that we'd have favor with, that those in our community would look and see the, the kind of koinonia, the kind of participation, the kind of fellowship that we have, that they would it'd be compelling to them. It'd be the, the demonstration of the power of the gospel. It'd be the kind of the gospel in a tangible way, being demonstrated in forgiveness and unity and love and generosity. Lord, thanks for the work that you've done in establishing this church. I'm so grateful for, 
the work of your hand that I see. I'm looking forward to this next year of growing in grace together as we give ourselves and study of, of Acts. I pray that you continue to teach us and encourage us in your word. Lord, we pray tonight specifically that you would be with Stephen and, and the Point Church as they prepare to launch. Lord, thank you for the work that, that you've put in and in preparing this congregation. Lord, you know who will show up. Lord, you know the ministry that they will have, and I pray that, that tonight would be a sweet time of celebrating your grace. I thank you for, for Greg and for Brazos Point and other churches that are not so concerned about their own church that they don't look up and look out at the opportunity that's in this nation. Lord, thank you for their generosity. Lord, thank you for Greg's leadership and having a heart to plant churches in Seattle. Lord, pray that you'd help us as a church to grow in a church that's not so focused on ourselves, but we, we can be growing in generosity and care and support of those works around us. Lord, we do need, we feel the need, we, we see the sense in which there is a lacking of gospel presence in the Northwest, in the Puget Sound. We pray that you would raise up leaders and communities of the gospel that will take the gospel into new neighborhoods and communities and that lives would be transformed, marriages would be restored, families would be healed. That hope and peace and joy would abound as people respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus. But we ask that you do this at the point. We ask that you do this at the Mountain Church. We ask that you do this in the church in the South King County as we proclaim the gospel, as we devote ourselves to studying your word, as we devote ourselves to meeting together and encouraging one another and breaking bread together and praying. I pray that you would be glorified. We trust that you will build your church, that you will add to your church, and we submit ourselves to your leadership and pray that you get the glory in our church, in our life, in our community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.